and welcome to episode 199 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers, and we like to go out under the nighttime sky to look at the stars. I seem to have lost my notes all of a sudden. <laughs> so, Shane, I was in an observing committee uh, meeting last or yesterday, which is mm -hmm. Saturday, and uh, part of the discussion was on interesting projects or programs. And uh, one of the members on the committee uh, raised uh, an interesting project from Deep Sky Magazine circa 1987, uh, Lucy and Kemble's 50 to the pole objects. So yeah, I think you actually went and took a, took a look at that as well. Just curious what you thought of that uh, little project. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, I didn't have time to read the article. Uh, it's actually been kind of a busy weekend for us. Um, so I will read it. Um, but yeah, what was kind of interesting is, so, uh, Lucy and Kimball, uh, you know, wrote that article and I have his magazine that his article appeared in, uh, because, um, you know, he's, uh, he's passed, but his, like his entire library of astronomical books and magazines were donated to the local Regina center. And, uh, I just have them on loan right now. The, oh, the cool. magazines, the deep sky magazines. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, so he uh, he'd written this article called "50 to the Pole" in uh, 1987, and uh, in that he he had a list, sort of a. Is, is, I'm not sure what he was thinking when he made the list, though, because it's 25, he says it's 25 selected objects. There's 600 objects he was trying to observe in uh, in the area from 50 degrees um, to 90 degrees on the, on the celestial sphere. And, uh, the reason for this is that, uh, you know, we live kind of North. And so he was kind of making a bit of a project for himself. And, uh, but in those 25 selected objects, he had 32, um, objects listed. So he kind of had grouped some of them together, I guess, like pairs of galaxies or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was kind of interested to, to see what those were. He also listed another 10 messy objects, so it kind of gives you like 42. So he talks about the 10 messy objects, just like lists them. And then he goes on and, and describes these uh, quote unquote 25 objects, which are really 32 objects. And then he also sort of mentions in passing uh, Kemble's Cascade. So you got really like 43 uh, independent objects um, listed there. <laughs> and then, and, and it's a, it's an interesting selection because much of it is very faint. It's sort of like um and I, I maybe like in, in, in his description there, he talked about it being almost like a test for an eight inch telescope under perfect skies. So a lot of uh, sort of 14th and up to like 15th magnitude galaxies, which uh, I don't know that I've ever seen a 15th magnitude galaxy through, a, through an eight inch telescope, but uh, that, that's sort of what he was working under. And uh, anyway, he eventually got an 11 inch telescope and then had put out this, uh, this, this list of these, these selected objects. But I, I thought it was interesting. Like they're not like the best and the brightest objects to the pole. It's um, it's it's a list that we're going to work through as an observing committee, and then maybe uh, maybe publish uh, on on the RASC website or s through some other means to to kind of raise some some interesting projects people might be able to to undertake. Um, I think a couple of the objects are in the challenge object list from the RASC, but most of them are are unique objects and extremely challenging objects, uh, I would, I would imagine. So I have seen a few of them. Um, and I know Bill, who's a frequent listener to the show, I think he's seen, uh, the majority of them with a 12 and a half inch telescope, but, uh, 
be kind of interesting to kind of visit those. Uh, need need some need at least eight inches of telescope though to see them. So uh, maybe maybe get Mike out going with his twelve and a half or twelve inch should uh, should be okay. So kind of kind of interesting to uh, take a look at those. Um, and in the article he wrote, kind of hit this neat neat passage about programs, and he said uh, such a program is a challenging uh, is a challenge and a test of your observing skills and yields unexpected pleasant surprises some frustration and plenty of insight into the universe and so he's talking about his 50 to the pole now when i first heard about it i was a little bit confused i thought it was 50 objects from 50 degrees north of the pole um to the pole and i thought oh that that's pretty cool because then it's like the 50 50 project um but uh Anyway, it's not not exactly what it is. Um, I, I like the write up in the table of contents. Um, so you know, it's fifty to the pole, and then there's a little description, and it says, you know, what is the modern Canadian deep sky observer to do? Uh, become hopelessly frustrated because he can't observe Sagittarius, Scorpius, and Centaurus in the dark, uh, contrasty sky. Hell no, <laughs> fifty four forty or fight, uh, or maybe that's fifty to the pole. And uh, I thought that was a great description. <laughs> I kind of chuckled over that. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he was an interesting guy. I never knew him. Did you did you ever meet him? I think he passed away before you were a member of the Rask. So yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, so I never met him. Um, and I think I just missed it by a few years. And then he like he had an observatory located just outside of Re- uh, Regina, the city that you and I live in. Yeah. And uh, he donated the the building to the local club, which was moved to the club's dark sky observing location uh, east of the city. And now stores um, the lawnmower, I believe, if it's still. It might. Yeah. Would. Yeah. It was a roll off roof observatory. And uh, that would have been quite the feat to move it. Um, and yeah. I wasn't and, around for that either. Yeah. I saw the pictures when they moved it. I mean, that was after I joined. They moved mm-hmm. it there. And uh, yeah. And then they they turned it into storage in true style of a of a club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it would be uh it's too bad it's not uh, seeing more astronomical use but it is what it yeah. is and you know clubs clubs do what they have to to get by yeah um but yeah the, you know looking at this list certainly certainly challenging you know the i think the faintest object on here uh, what is it ngc 5484 um an elliptical galaxy and ursa major at 15.5 magnitude yeah, I think it's near M101. If it's the one I'm thinking of. Okay, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and he he has a little comment here. Uh, although I think there's a there's a typo. Um, so he says uh, NGC 5484, 5485, and 5486. Uh, the notes an especially satisfying group of galaxies. Uh, NGC 5486, which I think should be 5484, uh, is extremely faint and listed at magnitude 15.5. Yeah. Wow. But uh, I think it's a great project for people with um, medium and larger jobs. You know, uh, one thing that people and and, and possible with people using uh, eight inch jobs under really dark skies, which many of our listeners have. And then we do have lots of listeners with larger aperture instruments. So uh, anyway, so here's here's uh, here's a list for those uh, individuals. And yeah, I plan to uh, try to work through it as best I can. If I can maybe convince Mike to, to do that, I was going to give him a call last night, but it got late, but, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll get in touch with him soon and, uh, kind of start to put some of these on his radar and hopefully we can go out this spring. Cause it, 
the, the, one of the neat things about this is it's 20, it's 25 fields, I think is what you're looking at. And there's a handful of stars and a couple other objects. And, and then he did mention some messiers, um, before he starts into that list. So I, I think it would be, um, yeah, just kind of to take the article sort of in its, in its entirety and then kind of look at everything he mentions in, in that whole, uh, whole article since, uh, since he does mention them all uh, one way or another. So anyway, yeah. cool. I, yeah, it's super cool. I'll tweet out. I'll, I'll just take a picture of the list and I'll tweet it out so people can see what's on there. Um, yeah. Certainly, you know, you, you need to be in the north to see this. And if you are, what is pretty cool, like a lot of these objects are, you know, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, Draco, uh, Cassiopeia. Like it, it's constellations that are in the sky 12 months of the year for us. So, you know, you, you can, you don't have to wait for a lot of these objects. They're there every night. Yeah. Yeah, it is cool. And I know we have a lot of listeners in the UK. And uh, so here's mm-hmm. here's a list for you. you. You're not going to struggle with trying to see stuff that it's really in the south or when it's too bright and astronomical twilight doesn't end for you either for a period of time in end of May to, to beginning of July. So uh, yeah, I mean, this this is a, a good list for, uh, for all of us who do live uh, sort of north of the uh, of the 49th parallel, you know, so mm-hmm. uh, and- pretty cool. Yeah, and and I don't want to just focus on like the fifteenth magnitude stuff on this list um, because there's a lot of other stuff here too. Like there's some stuff as bright as six point eight magnitude. Uh, you know, there's a handful of single digit magnitudes. You know, from yep. six point eight up to like nine point something, and then you know all the way from ten point six to that fifteen point five. So it kind of covers a whole bunch of magnitudes. Um, which is really cool because it, in a way, like what I like about double stars is, you know, it tests the observer's eye and the observer's equipment, you know, you, you push it to see, um, you know, if you can split real challenging doubles. And this is an interesting deep sky list because it will challenge you all along the way with different magnitudes. And you can sort of see what your limiting magnitude is for some of these objects. Yeah, I think, I think it's super cool. Um, and then as well, you know, you think about, it, and, and in a way, it's it's a more approachable challenge than than some of the other more challenging lists. Like I know, like the Caldwell list um, that Patrick Moore had come up with, which which also contains a lot of really interesting objects. I've, I think I've observed all those visible from from my latitude, and even traveled and saw a few. Um, but uh, unlike that list, where I think most of the objects you, you can see with reasonable aperture, um, this one as well you can see with reasonable aperture. But instead of Instead of having to go south to see that whole list, um, you know, this list is going to challenge you by uh, making you take your reasonable aperture out to darker and darker skies, right? Like you said, you can start probably like um, some of our correspondents, they, they have, uh, as they call them, back gardens in the UK, from what I understand, and they can go out and look at those single digit objects, um, you know, like sixth magnitude, eighth magnitude, ninth magnitude from their gardens. And then uh, they're going to run out. But instead of having to go on a on a plane or, or try to go somewhere fancy, uh, they can just like progressively go to dark and darker skies, like drive 20 minutes out of their city or town and 40 minutes and, you know, go to a dark sky um, site. I know there's uh, lots of awesome and I've seen videos of them. That's how I know that they look like great um uh, star parties that they have in the uh, in the in the summer there, and 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 even in the off season, they should be able to go and uh, and observe during and and at those uh, those dark sky uh, 
parties and maybe be able to get them all. It could be a good list for somebody at a dark sky party that had a good view to the north, eh? like in in April or October or something. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I I I think this is pretty cool. Um, uh, you know, I I don't really have the aperture for it, but I would love to look through uh, you know Mike's telescope or others, um, you know, just to see what some of these objects look like. Yeah, and and again, it's not a hundred objects; it's twenty-five fields, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, e even if you wanted to sketch them all, like most of us who sketch, you know, probably five objects would be a lot to sketch in a night. But you know, if you if you had like a really good week of weather um, and had five really good nights, and you were committed to spending like. Uh, uh, you know, for me anyway, it would probably take me uh, three and a half to four hours to, to do five sketches. Um, and lots of people sketch much faster. Um, you know, you could probably uh, get it done in a, a new moon period, you know, like that two week period. Um, and uh, over the course of, of a season, uh, like you said, because they're all fairly high in the north, um, you'd stand a fairly good shot at getting them all. Um, you know, without, uh, without, uh, you know, having to, to go too crazy, even, even if you only sketched, um, one or two a night, um, you know, you'd need, uh, you know, however many nights to, to do that 10 nights over, over the course of a season here anyway, it's not unusual. And I know in other places they might not get as many nights, but over the course of, uh, you know, of a, of a good summer, uh, should be able to get, uh, uh, 10 good nights, uh, or even a couple seasons or whatever, but because they're always up there, you know, being able to get 25 fields in a, in a year would be very, very easy to do. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Yeah. It makes me, makes me really think about getting like a, like an eight inch telescope and, and seeing if, if I could pull that one off, I feel like might be a stretch for some of those, but, but again, like you could get through most of it. I think probably an eight inch, even in a dark sky, um, is going to be challenged by a few of those, but you know, you go to the big star parties and you're like, you know, lots of people with 16 inch telescopes, it's going to make short work of some of those. So, uh, you know, you can probably, probably get them all without having to, uh, to do too much of an upgrade. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All right. Um, let's see. Sound like you left and rejoined or something. <laughs> so I got a big ding. So, Oh no, no, that's weird. Yeah. Sorry about that folks. Not really sure what happened there. Um, so yeah, apologize for that sound. So we had, uh, a couple, uh, pieces of correspondence from, uh, Ethan and Joseph and they kind of in inspired this cause they're working on some very interesting projects. Yeah. Um, yeah. We kind of teased, uh, Ethan's project on the previous episode and I'm fascinated uh, about this one for, for a couple of reasons, uh, you know, citizen science and the fact that it's uh, exoplanet related. Yeah. Um, so Ethan had, uh, had sent in a, a Patreon donation. We, we really appreciate that. We really appreciate what he sent in and, and I don't want to diminish that. Um, and like I said, we always do try to uh, write emails of thanks uh, to everybody, um, whether they're just, you know, sending a Patreon donation or sending us an email or what have you. Um, we do really appreciate that. Um, but when he replied, he came back with a really interesting take on on his entry into uh, amateur astronomy. And so he's a newcomer and I always want to call it like the sport of amateur astronomy. So, but he's a newcomer to amateur astronomy and uh, you know, it just shows that people are coming into this 
um, in, you know, coming down different paths, like different avenues and having uh, a different, a different take. Cause you know, we're all different, different people. And um, so he's going the road of one of these new robotic telescopes. And as well, I think he's trying to learn the sky was, uh, you know, had made the recommendation to get night watch. I think he had gotten it or was, uh, was going to pick it up. So, um, but he's gone out and bought one of these uh, robotic telescopes. So Shane, can I just start reading this and maybe we can yeah, yeah. go for it as we go through. So people can uh, know where uh, he's coming from a little bit. So Ethan writes, hi, Chris and Shane. It's good to hear uh, from you and connect. Thanks for the message. Um, he says, I'm a new listener from California. I've always been a big space and science nerd, uh, but now I'm just getting started on my journey into astronomy and astrophotography. I've been looking for a hobby where I'd learn new things, meet new people with common interest, and also contribute to science in some way. Astronomy and astrophotography seem to check all those boxes. To that end, I purchased a unistellar equinox, or is it, it's E equinox. So lowercase e, capital Q, a unistellar equinox telescope recently, and just had my first light this week. I mainly chose Unistellar because it seemed to have the lowest barrier to entry, at least technically. I was excited to be able to start viewing things right away, as well as engaging with the community of other Unistellar owners. I'm especially excited to start contributing to their citizen science initiatives, helping to track and monitor near-Earth objects, or NEOs, as as we often will uh, abbreviate them. Uh, In parallel, your podcast has been a great introduction to both basic and more advanced concepts that I hope to be able to understand one day. Okay. Hopefully we, we can make things a little bit more approachable. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, certainly if, if uh, we're overshooting or, or talking into the weeds, uh, please let us know folks. Uh, he says, eventually I hope to invest in more DIY rigs, equipment, et cetera, uh, such as those you talked about in the show. But for now, I'm really excited just to start looking at the sky, keep up the great work. So I was really interested that, so you know, traditionally, I, I think that people have entered the hobby in a few different ways, either like me, they, they kind of started looking at the sky, maybe they thought they were going to do astrophotography, started down that route, and then realized that uh, they just enjoyed looking at the sky. So I ended up becoming just a visual observer, or maybe they just, you know, naturally became a visual observer or hopped into the astrophotography eventually and, and really went down that path. But this, this robotic telescope path is this is a, a new path of entry for people. And I think it's really appealing in many ways. What, what are your thoughts on this, Shane? I think it's super cool. Well, it, yeah, like the telescope itself is is super cool, right? Like it builds, like I think it kind of builds a live image for you. Um, like uh, uh, the melon cams. I don't know if you've ever seen those before, Chris. Yeah. Um, so a melon cam, you know, you connect it to a telescope and then you will have like a monitor, like a, like a small television almost right beside your telescope. And this thing just starts imaging and it sort of builds the image live on that monitor for you. So like, you know, it might start off with just, you'll see some stars and then you might start to see like some faint cloudiness and then it just keeps building, building, building. And all of a sudden you have this bright nebula on the screen and it's super cool. And I think that these uni stars are are sort of similar to that, that they, they build this image, but what was really unique or what I was most interested in, I guess, maybe is the community aspect of this telescope, how, Mm -hmm. you know, they had this project that kind of went out to these unistellar owners 
And then they all got together on Slack, which is like an instant messaging platform, you, you know, to sort of talk, communicate, organize, do whatever and acquire data. Uh, this is super cool. Like this is amazing. Um, these Unistellars are, are not inexpensive, but knowing now what I know about, you know, the community, I'm far more intrigued by them. Yeah. And I think, you know, where these, where these maybe differ from, you know, uh, some of the other approaches, like if you want to contribute to science or, or do some stuff, I mean, you can, um, by being a visual observer, um, or, or doing astrophotography, but, um, I think you have to, you've got a pretty big learning curve to get to the point where you can do that. Right. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. But with these, you know, um, and, and I'll read his update here in a second, um, you know, as, as a newcomer to astronomy and, and really being attracted by that, which is, which is really a more popular thing. Citizen science is, is more popular thing than it was. I know than when, when we were getting into the Shane, mm-hmm. um, but for somebody who, who really is attracted to that, it, it definitely can break down those barriers to actually begin making those contributions super quick. Yeah. And like imaging, um, exoplanets is just, uh, I think it's so cool that amateurs can do that. And, and I guess maybe we should set the expectations a little bit here. Like they're not getting an image of, of a exoplanet, like what Jupiter or Mars would look like. Um, usually what it is, is, is they're detecting like a, a light or a magnitude dip in the star, you know, as Mm -hmm. the planet transits in front of it. Um, there's other methods to, to detect or, or to, you know, in quotes, image an exoplanet. Um, so the fact that, you know, again, backyard amateurs can do this kind of stuff, uh, and contribute is phenomenal. And, you know, I know, uh, like Rick Kuziak, you know, uh, one of our observing friends and Vance Petru here in the uh, local Regina club, um, they do a ton of, uh, variable star, uh, measurements and observing, and it's kind of similar, right? Like they're detecting the magnitude dips and, and some of those are, uh, due to, uh, exoplanets, but yeah, this is, this is really cool. Yeah. Do you want to read his, uh, cause, cause we had a, had a, you know, a brief exchange and then he sent us an update. I think it was last night or something. Do you want to yeah, just, yeah. do you mind reading that? Yeah. So hi, Chris and Shane. Uh, I just wanted to update you both and share that I completed my first exoplanet transit observation last night and into the wee hours of this morning with my uh, unistellar telescope. I observed, I think it's Qatar-8, B as in Bravo, and then in brackets, he's got uh, TOI uh, 2579.01 transiting its star. Uh, So I started observing and recording data at 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and continued until 3.45 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, There were several of us from the Unistellar community observing and recording this event from across the country. Uh, We were all chatting in Slack before and throughout the event, which made it really fun. Uh, I should caveat and say I don't know if I really captured the transit as it's not technically visible through the scope. Uh, We all upload our data, uh, or sorry, our recording data, and then scientists from different research organizations around the world crunch it all. Uh, If it shows that one of us captured the transit, they will then share that data back with us. So fingers crossed. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are dozens of exoplanet and asteroid occultations coming up in the next few weeks. 
I've added them all to my calendar. So, so I expect <laughs> a lot of sleepless nights in my future, but in the best possible way. Uh, I'm so, I'm so amazed by this, Chris. And yeah. I'm like, I'm super, I'm super motivated to, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever buy one of these telescopes, but I'm going to check it out. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm probably more motivated to just be connected with this community in some way, even if it's just listening to their observations. Uh, and I hope, uh, you know, Ethan continues to share yeah. this with us because I'm just fascinated by it. Yeah, I was really blown away by this. So, um, like, I, I'd sort of heard about and been following these along. I, I forget when they came out. I think it's been a, a couple of years anyway. And uh, really curious about them. Um, so this approach them now they take, they take some good quality images. Um, they do it sort of, uh, automatically. I think they have some filter wheels and some other stuff in them from what I understand, although I'm not an astrophotographer and have never used one of these, uh, pieces of gear. Um, and some of the things that I've seen people, uh, attempt to do with them is kind of compare them to, um, like for like astro imaging, like solely astro imaging purposes. Okay. And, you know, maybe try to take a picture of like the horse head and then see how close they can get the robotic telescope to, to, to make a, a similar high quality, high definition photo. And, and oftentimes, um, somebody with, uh, custom gear can make a better photo than what one of these instruments, uh, can make. Although these instruments are, are really, really good. Um, but that's sort of what I had seen. And I was just curious about those comparisons, but I hadn't been as aware of this citizen science aspect, mm -hmm. uh, as much as, as Ethan has, uh, has so eloquently, uh, explained it to us. And so, yeah, that kind of really struck home. Okay. These things are very, very powerful, um, crowdsourcing, uh, science data, uh, you know, conduits. Uh, this is just fascinating mm -hmm. that people can get these. Now, I don't think they're inexpensive. Uh, I haven't looked them up, but I'm guessing they're they're in and around four thousand uh, dollars American. Although uh, a good uh, astrophotography rig is probably going to start running people that much, and I've seen people spend that much to get up and going in astrophotography. And you know, uh, the citizen science aspect is certainly um, you know something that that people may wish um, to, to go down and be attracted to and really want to jump in right away. And so I hadn't really heard of anybody quite doing this before, at least, you know, I wasn't as aware of it, uh, maybe as I should have been. So Ethan really like kind of peeled back my eyelids when I started reading his email, I was like, what the yeah. heck? This is, this is like a whole new, like cutting edge way for people to get, to get into astronomy. And, uh, wow, did I ever appreciate getting this email from him? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, echo everything you said, Chris, and I'll just add a little detail. I'm on Unistellar's website. So the, uh, the Equinox is, is 3000 us dollars. And okay. you know, that is, if, if you're into imaging, that's a bargain. Um, okay. because you know, if you, I, it, it, like if you want a, a really good mount that tracks well, your camera, your guide scope, your telescope, you know, tripod, all of this mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, I don't know if you can do anything. I shouldn't say that, you know, the imagers will correct me, I'm sure. But, um, you know, you're probably at least $3,000 us to really come up with a, a robust rig that can, yeah. you know, do some real high quality stuff. Um, so, so this is certainly not like 
overpriced in any way, in my mind. And then if you go to their website, like, again, if anybody's really interested in this, like their menu along the top, it's products, events, citizen science. And then under citizen science, it's asteroids, exoplanets, uh, planetary defense, and ephemeris, uh, ephemeris. There we go. Um, so yeah, there's lots of cool things you can do. This is, uh, like, I just had no idea that this was, uh, what these unistellars did. I was aware of them and I really just thought it was like a, I don't know, a, a, like a one-stop shop for imagers. You know, you yeah, that's what I thought and, too. And yeah. you just, you know, you, you could just start imaging right away and it yeah. it took a lot of the learning curve out of that and maybe even some of the difficulty of buying all this gear, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, this is, uh, this is really cool. I'm, yeah. I'm so and- glad that Ethan made, made us aware of it. And he didn't, he didn't detail it here because um, we had another exchange and he had sent me um, a link to his, his website or his, I think it was his Flickr account, sorry. And uh, I think he'd also sent me a link to his website, which is uh, amazing. Uh, super uh, yeah, interesting. I saw that. Yeah. yeah, super interesting stuff that he's been involved in. Um, but as well, the, the astrophotos um, that he sent, very cool considering he just kind of got this and plunked it. I'm, I'm curious... I'm curious to know though, Ethan, are you, are you using it from like, like a balcony? Like I've spent some time in California myself, have friends there. And, um, I was really curious to know if he was using it like on a balcony or are you using it in a backyard or you're like going out to a dark sky? Um, you know, I was, I was interested in kind of like the sort of the, the workflow of it, I guess. Um, and then as well, I was, I was interested to note that although he's doing some astrophotos, um, it's more the citizen science, right? And again, that's uh, something like I think both you and I hadn't hadn't quite realized before. So um, just I thought this was just a really neat entry point. So, you know, I've had friends, um, if you can believe it, uh, I know I've had friends that are really good astrophotographers and they um, they set up their astro uh, gear, they're, they're doing their exposures, and then we go observing together. You've even been one of these people from time to time, Shane, where you'll bring out um, some lighter equipment, but you'll be doing photos, you'll be going off mm-hmm. and um, doing some photos, and then coming back and doing some observing with us. And you might look through our gear a little bit more on those nights. And I know I have uh, other astrophotography friends who, who sometimes won't bring out anything to look through. Um, they set up their gear, and then they're like, all right, what are you looking at? Because I'm you know, going to be a leech on you for the night, quite literally saying stuff like that. And uh, I could totally see somebody who, who's doing this, you know, um, maybe from like a dark sky location, like setting this up to do um, some citizen science and then doing some observing as well, you know, uh, just because there's somebody who enjoys the night sky. So I thought, wow, that would be really cool. So someone sets up this, they're doing um, exoplanet stuff. Maybe they're doing some NEO work and then they have their binoculars there and they're kind of, I don't know, looking at open clusters or whatever. I, I could totally see somebody uh, doing that. So this, this just is like a whole different avenue of amateur astronomy that, uh, that I've had my eyes open to this week. So thank you so much, Ethan. Yeah. 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 Thank you. This is super cool. All right, cool. Anything to add on, uh, on this Shane before we move on to the next? Nope. Let's move on. All right, super. Uh, so Joseph um, was another person who who was uh, a Patreon supporter, and uh, he had also written us extensively. So it was just kind of coincidental that we had uh, two Patreon supporters who then had replied with um, uh, you know these extremely detailed um, programs that they're working on, and uh, so you know. <laughs> 
yeah, I think you had kind of suggested this, Shane, is to kind of take these and turn them into an episode. And, uh, and I was totally there. I hadn't thought of doing that, uh, but I, I was totally there on this because they had sent so much detail. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would have been difficult to, to just incorporate these uh, two emails into regular uh, episodes. But Joseph writes, uh, do you mind if I, do you want me to read this one? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. All right. Um, Joseph Wright said, cause we were corresponding, but he wrote, dear Chris, I think a newsletter would be cool. So he had made the suggestion, maybe we would have a newsletter and, uh, I'd actually, um, volunteered you Shane, because you have newsletter experience. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see about a newsletter. I think that's a, that's an interesting idea. It's interesting. Um, I just would have to stop sleeping, I think, to find the time. So. <laughs> yeah, but you know, but there's different things we can do, I think. I I uh because he kind of detailed it some other stuff. And I think uh yeah, maybe there's some some things that we can uh work on from that perspective. Uh however, I understand that managing a podcast and responding to your listeners can be a lot of work, top of your jobs and your personal life. Uh yeah, that's that's true. Uh love doing it though. Like yeah. often what I do is uh is read the emails right before I have my lunch every day. So people are like, why is this person responding in the middle of the day? Um, and you know, I find that really, really a lot of fun or after dinner or something. Uh, if it's feasible to release uh, one every now and again, perhaps a monthly or bi-monthly, definitely be interested. Um, yeah, that's cool. One thing I do though, is I write for the journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. And um, it's just something I do for fun. And it comes out every other month. I have an article in there. And actually in the April edition, Shane and I will have an article we collaborated on about the podcast. It's going to be in there. So we do um, produce uh, regular things. And then I also um, am the editor for the RASC Observer's Calendar. And I'm also a contributor to the RASC Observer's Handbook. So there's there are a few ways you can kind of um, get material for us on, on a somewhat regular basis. Okay. Um, he goes on to say, uh, I generally don't read newsletters. In fact, the only one I actually read on a regular basis is the Rose City, Rose City Astronomy Club newsletter. I am familiar with that newsletter. That is a good newsletter. I've read it a few times. Nevertheless, I would enjoy getting a newsletter from uh, you and Shane. And I'd really love to see other listeners' sketches, photographs, and observation logs. So I like that idea. Um, so I think I think that's one thing we could probably... Um, work on as, as we go forward in, into the future is bringing together the other listeners, sketches, photos, and uh, observing logs because we really have um, an amazing group of listeners that have a variety of expertise that like no one individual could ever possibly have. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think it would be cool to bring those, those together somehow. So yeah, hopefully we can work on that. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. It would be neat if we, what we need is uh, like a, I don't know, uh, a third person that designs and builds things like this for us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We, uh, we would need more Patreon supporters to afford that person. Okay. Yeah, to have, to yeah, have staff. It, yeah. yeah. It would be cool. Like we do have a website. It would be cool to be able to have like components of, of the website and to maybe build it in there. Anyway, uh, he goes on to say in regards to sketches, I have included some attached to this email. I currently just use white paper and regular graphite pencils. Um, but I also like to uh, take a case out of mechanical pencil lead. Uh, I use these to draw a nebula and deep sky objects where light light is scattered over a large area. 
my current technique with these is just to break off a small piece of lead and rub the paper gently while I'm looking at the object. It's easier for me to observe the object through my telescope and simultaneously trace the perimeter of the object with the pencil lead between my finger and the paper. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, that's a very interesting technique. It, it makes sense. I just, I would have never thought of that. Yeah, that is super cool. You can see this technique in my sketch of Messier 45, and he's attached that. I put it down below if you want to take a look. Um, and when I first saw this sketch, I yeah. thought it was a photograph. <laughs> like, I know, it like it's a incredible. Black and white photograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for including that. I uh, thought it was super cool. Uh, and he said, I'm planning on trying this technique again this Friday as I'm planning to observe and sketch Messi 51. Please send that sketch. I remember either you or Shane suggesting using black paper and white oil pastels during the episode with Mike Rector. Yeah, it was Mike who made, Mike Mike is uh, somebody who's, who's using those. Um, I've tried unsuccessfully. So I'm going to try to ramp up for the summer and, and get set up to do those because Mike kind of detailed it out. Um, I think I was missing a couple um, techniques. So the one thing Mike had talked about was not sharpening the pencils as sharp as I was going and then just kind of refining them on the, uh, on the sandpaper. And I think that I had goofed up on my sharpening. I'm not an artist. So Mike, Mike kind of, I think is getting me over a little bit of a hump there. Can't wait to try it out. Um, Joseph goes on to say, personally, if I did make the switch, I think I would opt for white gel pens of varying sizes to get solid star points and perhaps use white colored pencils to deduce, um, clouds, nebula, dust, etc. I have limited experience with oil pastels, but it does not seem like the most intuitive choice for astronomical sketching, though I'm willing to give it a shot. Um, if either of you think it's worth a try. So I have to say this that um, it seems like Joseph has uh, some sort of background in doing this stuff or, or has given it a lot of thought. And I think, Joseph, you should do it the way you think you should do it because that sketch of M45 is done in a way that I've never heard of before. And, and I don't have that much of a background in sketching and my sketches are, are okay. Um, but uh, I, I think that you should try it the way you think you should do it and then show us the results <laughs> and then, yeah, and then yeah. go from there. Yeah. What do you think, Shane? Yeah. I think that's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, I, I, I would just be curious to see what you come up with because I think you're, you're kind of going down um, some really spectacular paths there and uh, would just encourage you to, to just, just keep going in the way that you think uh, you should go in and uh, don't necessarily take, anything that, that I say about sketching or any, anybody else uh, says for, for the, the, the only way to do it or the right way to do it or anything. It, it really is like an art form. And um, I just think that that, uh, that sketch of M45 was just so beautiful that, uh, uh, you know, whatever you think will, will create a similar or comfortable uh, sketching experiences for you do, do that. And then, then see how it goes and let us know um, and let me know. Cause I, I was also curious, um, sort of on my flip side, doing um, black ink on white paper, I'd actually migrated to using um, uh, not, uh, they're not uh, gel pens, but what they are, are manga art, artistic pens. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. So anyway. Is, is manga a brand or is that like a category? 
<laughs> manga is is an art form. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. using these Faber uh, manga pens. They're just called a Faber Castell Pit Artist Pen. Um, doesn't say it's a manga pen on it, but it came as a manga pen uh, in a manga pen case. So manga is like a like a I guess like a almost like an artistic caricature type of drawing. Style. It's used largely in in like anime, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Which I don't know very much about, clearly. Um, but I thought the pens uh, looked pretty good and they were on sale. So I picked them up and I've been using those just for some of my sketches. So I've tried a similar thing um, uh, that you're describing, but for uh, black on white. So I'd be curious to see how you make with, with the, the white on black. I think that's, that's pretty cool. Um, let's see. Just trying to find my space here. He mentioned something about a bino viewer. Or but do they provide a clearer, more detailed image? I'm thinking of getting a bino viewer myself. However, I have several pairs of nice binoculars. I also have been looking into equatorial mounts for one of these binoculars. What's your opinion? Oh, so that might be why I didn't reply um, because Shane, that's more your uh, wheelhouse. So do you want to kind of work through his questions on the bino viewer? Uh, yeah, well, I, you faded out there. I, I completely lost you. So I'm not a hundred percent sure. Where Do you see his questions on the binder viewers? Uh, I'm just looking here. Here, I can just read them off. So yeah. do you need uh, two of the same eyepiece to use the binder viewer? Yeah. Yeah, you do. Um, yeah, for sure. Like you, you know, the 24 millimeter pan optic that I reference, I have two of those. If you mismatch your eyepieces, you'll likely have different focal points. Um, you'll probably, you know, so you'll, you'll never have, well, I shouldn't say never, but it might be very difficult to have two different eyepieces focused um, at the same time. Uh, and then you may also have issues merging the images. Uh, like, you know, they, that, that's one of the bigger challenges with a bino viewer is, is some people struggle to merge the image so that you're not seeing doubles. And if you're not using... Uh, two uh, two matched eyepieces then you're you're going to struggle so that is probably one of the barriers to entry i think with vinyl viewers is that you know you you got to double up your eyepieces and um one one way you can get around that is uh, dankmeyer and maybe Earthwind. i'm not too sure they, hmm. they make um a thing called a power switch so this goes on the bottom of your vinyl viewer and it basically uh, so it, it has like a reducer and like a Barlow lens in it and you slide it in and out of the focal, uh, focal plane. And what it does is, you know, there's, there's, uh, like three, three settings. So one setting is just your eyepieces natively in there. Then one will reduce the focal length so that it's a lower power, wider field view. And then the other one increases. So it's like a Barlow, it'll increase the power. And it saves you then from having to buy, you know, a bunch of eyepieces. So you buy one set of eyepieces, you know, say two 24 millimeter pan optics. Um, and then the power switch effectively makes it like you have, th you know, three different focal lengths of eyepieces. So it's kind of a, a little bit more of an economical way to approach it. And it also saves you then the hassle of switching eyepieces in and out. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds really, uh, Really good. Um, let's see. Where, what else do we got here? I sorry, I lost my. Uh, I was trying to uh, take take a look at my Zoom settings here because did have some some challenges. Um, yeah, he goes on to say uh, in regards to antique astronomy books. We had mentioned some antique astronomy books and manuscripts. Um, he's included one 
as an attachment. Um, doesn't have a physical copy of the book, hasn't been able to find one, but the PDF was provided through the Rose City Astronomer. So thank you so much for sending that. Um, he believes he obtained it from the University of California Library website. Um, it's an interesting read, understanding a uh, wonderful photo of the Pleiades. Um, just trying to get through here. He talks about the astronomical scrapbook, Skywatchers, Pioneers, and Seekers of Astronomy by Joseph Ashbrook. I have that. I have that book. That's a great book. Um, much newer book, 1984. Uh, not quite an antique yet. Um, it's a funny and casual series of essays from oddities. Yeah, my copy is like a preprint copy. I've like like uh, not the first edition. It's the pre-first edition. So there's some like weird uh, things with it. A friend friend bought it for me, found it somewhere and sent it. Um, I think they go for $20 online. I realized I have both the books you mentioned, Celestial Objects for Common Telescopes by TW Webb, uh, but I haven't read them yet. So I think he would have really enjoyed those um, Celestial Objects for Common Telescopes by Webb. Um, I'll have to set out some time tomorrow and, and take the scopes out on Friday night. Uh, then he goes on to say, now in regards to the field of view calculator. So he's creating a field of view calculator. Yeah, this is cool. And, yeah. And then um, let's see. Uh, so yeah, so he's created a field of view calculator and he's working on a widget. I think I made a recommendation to maybe take a look at a different calculation, but it gets gets pretty close, I think, with what he's uh, doing. And he talks about uh, how Cloudy Nights has compiled a list of field stop. Or, or he was asking if Cloudy Nights has compiled a list of field stop diameters. Uh, they have. It's actually a sticky in the eyepiece forum. Um, so if you go to the eyepiece forum, there's actually an Excel spreadsheet that gets updated frequently that you can download. So when, as people buy eyepieces, they make these measurements. It doesn't have every eyepiece on there, but it's pr probably got like three quarters of the eyepieces that are out there. So what would be cool, because he was asking for like a, like any of our suggestions or recommendations. And this is um, one thing that that it's that sort of has something I've been looking for is if you could um, have a widget that would somehow generate those field of views. So what you would do is just put the focal length of your telescope in and then maybe select the eyepiece somehow, and then it would give you the field of view. And tr traditionally, that's not how these field of view calculators work. Typically, the field of view calculators work by uh, they take uh, the uh, apparent field of view and divide it by the magnification, which gets close um, within like a quarter of a degree or something like that. Um, but anyway, he, he had just sort of asked for a suggestion. I think it's really cool that he's made one of these field of view calculators. Um, but if somebody was sort of looking to, to step that up a notch and actually give an accurate one. Um, I think that would be that would be pretty cool. Maybe those those already exist. I just wasn't aware, and I just kind of do my own calculation. And that calculation to get the most accurate field of view is to take the uh, field stop diameter divided by the focal length of the telescope and multiply by I think it's radian, which is fifty seven point three. That will give you the actual uh, field of view for the telescope. Um, you know, and it's something that I really get into. Some other people get into. Um, a lot of people just don't care. They just you know know they're going to get so much magnification. And they want a certain field of view and as wide as possible is often the case. So they're going to get hundred degree eyepiece or something. All right. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Lastly, to answer your location question, he lives in Oregon and he says that he has some access to some darker skies. I think it sounds like in the summer and let's just see going through this just to see, I think his wife has done some astronomy too. I just don't want to go 
too down the rabbit hole because we're getting short of time. He said, that's all for now. I really appreciate how much effort you guys put into the podcast. It's my favorite podcast to listen to. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. And I always learn something new while I listen. Well, this time... <laughs> half of it is your email to us so we really appreciate it. we yeah we, we learned uh, quite a bit from you in in this one uh, as well joseph and i know we're kind of getting short on time but uh, maybe i'll just see shane if you have anything left to add on joseph's uh, email and then we can wrap up yeah just one thing um the the thing you referenced on cloudy nights the the spreadsheet it's the 2021 ip spires guide uh so if you go into that uh, uh, pinned thread at the top of the forum. There's a spreadsheet from the first post and it has field stop and all other data points uh, that you can think of with eyepieces. It's, it's a real handy resource and um, I've, I've used it quite a few times. Cool. Um, just before we, uh, we duck out, I'm going to send a thanks to Jim who sent me uh, Astro Image of the uh, Seagull Nebula. I had it in the notes for the previous show, but um, I don't know why I think it might be the internet today having some like sound cutting in no chains noticing it on my end. I'm noticing it a little bit on his end. Um, and then I even switched computers and everything and it hasn't, it hasn't done anything. I've switched computers, microphones, tried everything I can here and it's not changing it. So it's got to be something external to my setup. Um, so thanks so much, Jim, for sending that. I uh, really appreciate the Seagull Nebula image that, that you sent in the details. Um, again, that would be a great thing for us to have in, in some sort of uh, online format so that other people can enjoy it as well. And then uh, Felipe uh, from Brazil had sent me this really uh, cool update on his, he's built a go-to system for his telescope. He's got it working. He's got um, right ascension and azimuth drives on it. And uh, he also wrapped his 166 millimeter Dobsonian in carbon fiber. I think it looks super cool. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for sending those along, uh, Filippi. So anything uh, to add to this one, Shane, before we put it in the can? Uh, nope, nothing to add. All right, super. Well, thanks, Shane. And thanks so much to everybody for listening. Sorry if we did have some sound troubles today. I, I don't know. Maybe I got to get a... I have a wire that runs into this office. I might have to try to actually hook it up again. All right. So we'll talk to you soon. And thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>